Europeans, we are the engineers of the future. We are the architects, we are the scientists, we are the positivity and hope. We are representing what democracy looks like. Big, bold and building from the grassroots. But this is just the beginning. We have an entire country to change, an entire system to transform, an entire planet to protect. As Greens, we have a big vision. So let's get out there and let's do Welcome back to Green Space. On this platform, we explore green ideas and look into the Green Party's platform and policy proposals while getting personal and going deeper with the people who make up the movement. I'm your co-host Sedan Alnar and today I'm with Deputy Leader of the Green Party of England and Wales, Amelia Womack. Amelia is, like I said, Deputy Leader of the party, but she's also the Green Parliamentary Candidate for Newport West, Co-Chair of People's Assembly and Co-Founder of Another Europe is Possible. So she's basically like an all-around political beast. Amelia, thank you so much for coming out to the podcast. It's such a pleasure. I know you've been really busy campaigning, so I do appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I think it was this Friday, in just one day, you've done like seven interviews in three different studios. Yes, yeah, yeah. That was um, that was Friday, yes, and yeah. uh, it began, all started at 8.30 in the morning, and my last one was at 10 at night, oh, so it was uh, an incredibly <laughs> hectic day, including traveling to different places, but... Um, I think what's been really exciting about this campaign is it's felt that like we've got more media than we did in 2015 and 2017 combined. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really proof of um, the power of voting green when you see how media choose who, who they're going to interview. Things like getting two million votes in the European elections secures us more media in the future, which means we can work to, to hold all, the, all of the parties to account. Yeah, absolutely. The stakes are higher than ever, right? Like, the situation is really bad. We all know the IPCC report, but since then, other reports have been coming out as well, and they are saying the same thing, if if not worse. For example, this week, the World Meteorological Organization released a report, and it says that we could experience an increase of three to five degrees celsius by the end of the century mm -hmm. and this just does make all the elections that are being held right now climate elections is just it's just that simple and it makes so many things that that we're used to talking about in politics just irrelevant and of course the the stakes are higher especially for a party like the green party because you actually understand the challenges of the century and the challenges we're facing but like you said, there is a huge momentum around these issues right now. People, especially young people, are out there protesting for both the present and the future of our planet, demanding immediate climate action. So to me, this all means the climate crisis is finally on people's survival agenda, which I think is, you know, what they base their votes on. What do you think? You mentioned the gains you've got in the recent elections. You doubled your councillors in the local elections and also doubled your MEPs in the European elections. What do all this momentum and gains in those elections say about where politics in the UK is going? So I think there are lots of things at play here. The gains that we've made in our councillors and our, in the European elections, I think, isn't just because of the change um, people's concerns being around the climate, it's also that they've seen hardworking people working in their communities and see the real change that voting green delivers when you have a more diverse kind of politics. Mm -hmm. I think winning in those council seats just proves that we can beat the first past the post system, which is uh, an incredibly yeah. tough system to, to win in. And then European, those have translated into European seats across the country. And it, it has been a completely changing time for our understanding of, of climate and in 2017 when Caroline Lucas was co-leader she was in Westminster carrying a big green question mark asking where is the environment in this election because politicians <laughs> and press simply weren't covering it yeah. but it feels like climate change really is at our door and and when you see the fires around the world from in Australia and in California and the Arctic when this year we've lost our glaciers 
but it's not just talking about them melting and disappearing they've now gone and the great barrier reef has disappeared by 50 we've lost 50 percent of it these are all incredible changes that i think that people just didn't believe were going to happen it's uh it seemed like a distant time that people said these things would happen and now and now it's um it's right here it's on our doorstep in places like yorkshire where mm-hmm. flooding has taken place across the the area um as well as other parts of the country that has had a devastating impact on on people's lives on people's communities and um i think that people are starting to realize that the reality this isn't just about a few degrees warmer this is about a massive shift in how our entire planet operates and we don't even know all of the different issues that might occur as a result of a changing temperature and a changing climate that will affect us. Yeah, it it's not just about people having this awakening about the dire effects of the climate crisis, the you know, the real life day-to-day impacts of it. But also people are now seeing what happens when they elect Greens for powerful positions. Absolutely. Like with the new mandate after the European elections, there is now a more powerful and bigger Green group in the European Parliament. And last week, the European Parliament declared a climate emergency. So it does make a difference having Greens in any political body. But it's also funny because, you know, we're talking about all this awakening and mobilization. And amongst all of this, there is one group that had, and I think still is having a bit of a hard time keeping up and reading the conjuncture in a way that would keep them relevant. Of course, I'm talking about the other parties, especially when it comes to the climate crisis. I mean, they were sensible enough to try to become relevant by setting out plans to win over voters concerned about the environment and getting some green credentials. And this was reflected in their manifestos for this election. They developed climate-related Green New Deal-like policies that were integrated into their manifestos. And of course, this has been all over media. Just this week... You know, because I knew that I was going to do this interview, I was looking into articles about the Green New Deal in the UK. Mm -hmm. And I think I've checked out about 50 articles published in the past three months. And I know the devil is in the detail. Absolutely. But I think sometimes the mainstream debate about big policies like the Green New Deal focuses on the details and the specific components that make up the bill so much so that they get stuck in details. And then we just end up not seeing the big picture anymore. And, you know, I was a bit shocked to see pretty much none of those articles mention the fact that the Green New Deal was come up with by a study group Caroline Lucas started and was a part of years and years ago, you know, even before this bill traveled to the U.S. So I think there's a huge lack of information out there. And I want to set the record straight on this podcast. What's the background of this deal and how did it actually come to life? So the Green New Deal reflects on the new deal that they had in America um, under Roosevelt. So while they were experiencing economic turmoil in America, to try and create a baseline of of employing people, of making sure that they were building their economy from from a, a workers' level about to actually building themselves out of that recession. Uh, Roosevelt put forward a new deal that was about building things like railways, building uh, building their way out of a recession. And um, it, when we hit the economic crisis in two thousand and eight. It was groups of, of people like Caroline Lucas and Anne Pettifor who came together to talk about how we could create effectively uh, something, of how we use the environment to build our way out of a recession, to make sure that we, we are working from the grassroots, that it's not going to be the richest people that survive. It's going to be the people who are on lower incomes that, ha- are, that have opportunities as a result of clear policy that will be tackling our, our climate and environmental impact at the same time. Yeah. And so actually there was an interesting podcast recently where um, people were saying um, it was like a UK versus USA's Green New Deal. And um, the uh, I think somebody from the, the original group said, 
of course, the Green New Deal began in the UK and the people from who were working with um, uh, AOC in America were just saying, well, you just put the word green in front of it. And I think it stems from, you know, that that work really stemmed from how we can do something different, how we can actually tackle social issues here in the UK by ensuring that we tackle our environmental issues at the same time. And I think it's deeply important that we don't lose that. I think too many people feel that environmental policy is an add-on. And when you said the devil's in the detail, I think this is the fundamental detail that's missing. Uh, Environmental policy isn't an add-on. Environmental policy must thread through every single part of other policy, whether that's economic policy, whether that's social policy. Mm -hmm. And we see what we can, the difference we make when we're we're integrating all of these different aspects, because I feel like the environment isn't an add-on to our lives. The environment is the food that we eat. It's the clothes that we wear. It's the um, it's the it, people who use their skills that turn the environment, that turn resources into the goods and services that create business and therefore create the economy. And if we're talking about the environment as something separate, then we're actually missing a whole part of our economics, a whole part of our society. And I think uh, by integrating that Green New Deal, about it being about workers' rights, about opportunity, about creating something is important because I feel that there is so much that's been lacking in politics these last uh, few decades, and that is a clear vision. And I think the Green New Deal sets out that clean vision for the future about warm homes and railways and making sure that we have a renewable energy and it's about jobs and it's about people, but it's also about climate action at the same time. Yeah, and it's really telling when, when you look at a few parties and one has been screaming this kind of policies for decades. And the other ones have been basically forced by the younger groups they have in in their parties to adopt these kinds of policies. Then it's clear which party made this the core foundation they base their other policies on instead of having it like an add-on thing. But that's not the only thing these articles seem to be missing. I've been seeing this pattern of paint in the Greens, Green New Deal and the Labour's Green Industrial Revolution with the same brush. And I mean, even the names, I I just said it, they have different names, and words do matter, right? Absolutely. When I was thinking about this this week, like the name difference, it reminded me of this book I got as a gift for my birthday this year. Mm -hmm. It's called Call Them By Their True Names by Rebecca Solnit. Right. And, And the book starts with this statement, quote, One of the folktale archetypes tells of how a mysterious or threatening helper is defeated when the hero discovers his name. In the deep past, people knew names had power. Some still do. End of quote. Mm. And that's exactly what I was thinking. Every policy has a soul. And the name of these bills and policy proposals, you know, tell us a lot about their souls. What do you think? What does the Labour Party calling their climate policy Green Industrial Revolution tell us about the soul of the policy they're proposing? A lot of talking about that Green Industrial Revolution, I think, is about repackaging what that Green New Deal can be. And I do think, to be honest, in terms of that package, what the Green New Deal essentially is, is Green Party policy repackaged because we've been thinking about all of these different aspects for such a long time. You can't take away the decades of work that's gone into our policy because we've been talking about this from the very beginnings of our party. But I think that it does show a compromise. And when we're talking about uh, Labour still supporting airport expansion, when we're talking about the fact that even during this campaign, the Silvertown Tunnel's been given the go-ahead, which uh, benefits cars and uh, will increase air pollution rather than genuinely tackling some of the problems that we have of um, with, within public transport in London. Uh, we've seen coal mines being given the go-ahead. We've seen basically a compromised position for it to seem like... Even HS2. Same with HS2. We've seen a compromised position on that uh, green industrial revolution so that it is just talking about one single aspect. And I think that the industrial revolution essentially was a time when we moved into a lot of the, the the production that we understand 
the day of uh, the kind of creation of steel, of manufacturing. And, and it means that we're, it's still talking about that aspect. And Labour's Green Industrial Revolution still talking about manufacturing of electric cars rather than trying to think of new ways of making public transport accessible. And it's still trying to look at how we were doing things, how we understand we should be doing things rather than making a step change into how things should be done for this, to make it fit for the 21st century. And I understand why you would compromise some of that language, because I think that uh, where I'm from in Newport, we are proud of our industrial heritage. And, uh, you know, Newport was one of the most important cities, well, it was a town in the, at the time, in the entire world. For those of people who know Newport, to think that it was this uh, incredibly thriving industrial town that was shipping to America. And uh, I've seen signs up in a uh, in museums in America that say that they uh, they got their coal from Newport, England, which, wow. uh, as you can imagine, being Welsh is very uh, yeah. very frustrating. That <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I was almost there with a um, a marker to try and edit that one. <laughs> but the you know it's one of the most important cities because of our industrial past, and I think that you know, this Green New Deal does echo a change that made some of our our cities that have been long forgotten by political systems. It does echo some of those opportunities. But what what I think is so different and so important, our Green New Deal is about incorporating so much more than just creating production, production, production. It's about bringing in um, whether that's small business, whether that's making sure that we're talking about other issues that we experience in our communities, whether that's putting our energy sector into the hands of communities by supporting community owned power or community ownership as a whole. There are many different aspects that it's not just talking about what we can produce it's talking about who we can be and what we can be as a, as a country in the future yeah absolutely you know george lakoff says when you see a word or hear a word it creates and activates a frame in your brain so when i heard that the labor party was going to call their climate policy green industrial revolution the frame that it immediately activated in my brain was that reckless pursuit of infinite economic growth instead of human well-being. Mm. So, you know, these names are actually quite telling in terms of how the specific components of these bills are going to be implemented and what kind of society they're aiming towards. And also, I, I just find it cheeky, too. Like, in a way, it has the word green in it but it's actually not green. So it's kind of like stealing some green credentials. A very similar thing is actually happening in the U.S. right now with Bernie Sanders' healthcare bill called Medicare for All. You know, because it's so popular, even amongst conservative and Republican voters, some of the other Democratic candidates had to either back it or create their own version of it because they also don't want to lose their insurance company donors. So they don't really want to back Medicare for all. But like Pete Buttigieg, one of the front runners, named his healthcare proposal Medicare for all who want it. <laughs> it's just not the same at all. <laughs> yes. Like the content, the substance is just not the same at all. But it has Medicare for all in it. So a regular voter may look at that and think, oh, yeah, that looks similar. It's just, maybe it's similar enough, you know? So as opposed to the kind of society the Green Industrial Revolution is aiming towards, what's the kind of society the Green New Deal aims to create? We believe that power belongs in communities. And I think... Uh, a lot of the aspects of the Green New Deal is about thinking about how we bring different kinds of power into our communities, into our high streets. And it's kind of reflecting, let's begin at, at what the high street could mean. We want to be making sure that we have a, a land value tax that means that our communities won't get gentrified because we won't have rising business rates. Instead, it will be those who own the land that will have to have to pay a tax on the changing use of that land and meaning that we're not forcing our small businesses and shops out of our communities and we're able to invest in some of those on a local basis. Even investing in things like repair cafes, using increasing our council funding to mean that we can 
reverse the cuts that have torn apart the very fabric of our communities, whether that's losing rape crisis centres, domestic violence uh, support and uh, youth centres, but also investing in things like repair yeah. cafes to mean that we're breaking that mould of, as you said, the model of economic growth, growth for the sake of growth, just simply is a broken model if we want to be making sure that we are challenging many of the problems that we have in our society and environment. Whereas uh, with um, policies such as making sure that we have a right to repair in everything that we purchase to stop goods uh, effectively becoming obsolescent as a result of a, a design mechanism that means that you're not able to buy parts or they actually just stop working after their, their warranty effectively runs out but also bringing some of that repairing in terms of skills and community of, of having repair cafes so that people are able to go and actually repair their things. I mean, this seems like uh, kind of breaking it down into the detail, but I think that those details about what we can do, because simply there's a, a power in simpl simplicity. The aspect of what our communities can do, especially when we're thinking about how we tackle the climate emergency, I think uh, having worked in flooding, many people will know lots of the, the places that they ha they're experiencing huge runoff or blocked drains or many of the problems that are causing some of the, the, the flooding in our communities. It's the community that will be able to talk about how public transport, how well, why it doesn't work in certain areas. And I think uh, by talking about community first and foremost and, and ensuring that, that we're investing at a council level is so vitally important. But beyond that, I think uh, what we want to build is a more interconnected country. And I, I mentioned about electric cars. And I think uh, although we do want to see electric car use uh, over as a, uh, an opportunity over petrol or diesel, that there are so many other models about how we can create, uh, how people can use a car. The majority of the life of a a car is spent parked. I think it's something like 97% of a, a car's lifespan will be spent parked at the car side of the road. Wow. But if we can create new models of, of car sharing and uh, new models that mean that we are, not every single person needs to purchase a car, but um, if you did need to use a car that there are other models like the kind of zip car model, those kind of the ideas and organisations. But that the using a car is something that you do as a last option because cycling is so easy, getting a train is so easy, getting a bus is so easy. And, and I think that, you know, I travel the whole country and I talk to people about green ideas and all people want is the greenest option to be the cheapest and the easiest option. They've seen Blue Planet and they question why it's been allowed that every time they go to a shop, They've been given a, a plastic bottle of water or whatever it might be that they purchase rather than it being water in an aluminium can or getting their grapes in, um, in, in paper bags rather than plastics. You know, there's been innovation in, in terms of how we phase out plastic, but they, people question, why was that given to me as my only option in the first place when it's creating such environmental damage? It's not just always about consumer choice because there isn't always the choice there, or those choices are too expensive. And people do want to see that green change, um, but they want it to be simple. And I think that when you look at all of these points, whether that's about renewable energy or, or public transport or home insulation, they, people just want it to be cheap and easy. And I think that that's what we want to do as Greens, is to be able to secure that for people so that we're not having to concern ourselves about what our, our choices do to the planet, that we know that we've been given a pathway to making those easy those options in an easier way. If any of these ideas are resonating with you, even if at some point you went, yeah, that makes sense, then you know what to do. Talk to people about these ideas. Go out and help green candidates campaigning on the ground. And most importantly, be a part of the movement. Become a member. Join the Green Party. www.join.greenparty.org.uk Get on it. Amelia, when you put it that way, the Green New Deal just sounds so different than the other party's climate policy proposals. But then that's why it's more frustrating when people get it wrong. Like, Friends of the Earth did something weird this weekend where they first said the Green Party's manifesto on the climate was better than all the other parties. 
Then they had another chart saying, actually, no, we received some emails from the Labour Party saying, you know, with some extra promises, they're going to do more than what they said they would do in their manifesto. So that's why this chart is saying they're better when it comes to tackling the climate crisis. I actually don't have a question on this. Just, I, just what? Absolutely. Huh? I share I share that feeling entirely. And I think when I saw that that had happened, it seemed so disingenuous. And I've actually seen this happen in other sections of the, well, very specifically the Labour Party, um, having a, a fully costed manifesto. And I think we've got to remember how proud they've been of that fully costed manifesto, every debate. It's been brought up and then from housing to the climate, then they've had these additional add-ons to make it sound like their manifesto has been more radical. The extent that I was talking to a housing journalist the other day who said how um, radical their housing policies were. And I was like, I, I don't remember seeing some of these points that you've raised in the manifesto. And she said, oh, no, no, it's not in the manifesto. It's been in uh, additional releases. So if um, I think that that's something that what we've done as Greens is we've basically said, we want to tackle the climate emergency with a Green New Deal. This is what it looks like. And then this is how much it costs. And when it stood up to scrutiny, when we've worked out the, the calculations, that has stood up to people looking at our plans and investment. And they've gone, you know what? It sounds like a lot of money, but that is how much it costs. And essentially, if we don't tackle the climate emergency, it will cost more in the future. Whereas I think what other parties have done is, well, that sounds like a nice policy. We will add that on. And um, in the case of labor as well, it's not. So we don't have to mention the price for it then. How convenient. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. But then on top of that, just the idea that four uh, shadow ministers who have pledged to do this becomes a pledge from the party, I think is incredible. I think that when it comes to climate and environment, it can just be a tick box exercise where there's no negative impact for Those other points we talked about before of airport expansion. And I mean, I went to an event that was about a review of Heathrow, the legal review, the legal challenge of Heathrow. And um, there were people from different unions there who were the counter protests to our event because they wanted Heathrow expansion for jobs. Now, as someone who's really proud of what trade unions do for our people, for people and the work they do in this country, find it frustrating to see trade unions supporting jobs that don't exist yet, rather than celebrating jobs that could be through something like a Green New Deal. And I think just this kind of point on on Friends of the Earth, I feel like while it's popular, everyone suddenly wants the Labour Party to be doing well on the environment. And uh, I was on a very telling panel on uh, environmental business leaders across the UK. And all of the parties that were there were myself, Labour, Conservative and Lib Dems. And the the person who was from the Labour Party, actually, although they were representing the Labour Party, they were uh, an advisor to John McDonnell. And he basically was saying, we had all of these incredible ideas. They should have been in the manifesto, but they um, were compromised uh, by a number of different people, including some of those those unions. And I think it's been disappointing that the language within the labour movement has been it's that workers' rights or is environmental protection, you can't have both. And I think that that's where the manifesto has fallen this time as well. But I think what was also very telling about that debate was the um, person from the Liberal Democrats was reading their policies out of the manifesto because, <laughs> I mean, it's probably, it's quite hard to remember policies when you've, such so as started to adopt them last week, last month. Wow. And it, I found found it so telling that he felt that he had to read it out because, yeah. I mean, talking about environment policy, climate policy is so comfortable to us in the Green Party. But for those who are just needing to learn these complex issues, it's effectively not used to being able to talk about these huge, and it is big, isn't it? It is complex. And it's... um. I mean, the, the sound bites are easy to know, but when you're being challenged by environmental leaders, then it's a, a very different game than just being able to remember the key statistics. And I think when we're talking about growth and uh, the role that it plays on our well-being, on our society and in our, our environment, I've always found the fast fashion industry embodies all of these different aspects because we know that a clothing company makes its uh, 
clothes to ensure that they keep their shareholders happy. And so they need to keep selling clothes. As a result, clothes don't last forever. They're, they'll fall apart. Or what the system tells us is that the fashions change and that we need to be buying new clothes for every season. Some companies are bringing out more and more lines throughout the year so that we can constantly buy new clothes. But that purchasing of new clothes means that we are destroying, uh, you know, cotton is such a, a water intensive plant. And as a result of the cotton industry, the Aral Sea has dried up. The uh, Colorado River sometimes never reaches the sea. Products like denim are, again, very water intensive and are normally produced in some of the driest parts of the world, creating additional water stress on those communities. And the working conditions that many of those people experience from women, young girls going into the uh, garment industry at a young age, being trapped in it in a wage that is so low that they can't keep a roof over their head and food on their table while they're wor working extortionately long hours. But then by the time throughout their lives, they're trapped in this industry because they never had an education. The Ranza Plaza disaster where we saw people killed as a result of working in unsafe working conditions. And then at the end of the day, all of that, those purchasing of new clothes, does that really produce happiness? What does that produce at the end of the day instead of just a truckload of clothes going to landfill every single second? And it's, to me, it's a good example of how that model is so broken, how we're told to buy all of the time and, and what does it really bring? And I think, uh, you know, when we do talk about the Green New Deal, I think it is important that we, we talk about other aspects, growth doesn't work in a finite planet. Growth doesn't produce well-being and happiness. And uh, how we measure things differently is so vitally important. And we all want that. We all want more leisure time. We all want to be able to, to do things in our communities with our friends and our family. And I think even we talk about a, a leisure, a well-being index rather than GDP. We've talked about different ways of challenging how we live our lives. I even one of my favourite policies in this election is actually reducing VAT to 5% on leisure activities because it's so important to not only boost those kind of um, boost doing that in the community itself, but it's so important for people themselves. Even things like having a four day working week, which I think has. Um, that is my favourite one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think uh, on the big debates has been mocked by Boris Johnson. It's just such a shift and the world is changing. And especially when we're seeing more um, technology changing how our jobs work, it's so vital that we think differently about how we should live in this world. And, uh, you know, a four day week is uh, is the next step in our, our rights for our well-being. And our, I think what we all want is more time to be able to do the things that we want to do. And again, those things that we want to do to be the to, to be easy and accessible, whether that's specifically kind of leisure activities that we might be doing from from going to the cinema or enjoying our, our local parks and communities. Yeah, you mentioned getting marked because of some of your specific policies. And yeah, I, I do see that sometimes you get singled out because politicians on mainstream media can go, oh, the Greens again, talking about people's well-being. Uh, but, but you're not the only ones trying to create a momentum behind this way of thinking. Like, it's not only you. I think it was yesterday or the day before Prime Minister of Iceland said she is urging governments to prioritize sustainability and family time over obsessing about economic growth. Mm. And she teamed up with the Scottish First Minister and New Zealand's Prime Minister to promote this agenda focusing on well-being. And they're basically saying... Social indicators are needed outside of the traditional GDP data. And also, I need to mention, all these three politicians are women, which again shows why we need to elect more women for powerful positions. But we're so far behind when it comes to that, that the society in the UK today is so worn down by capitalism's relentless productivist drive and one of its gravest consequences, the climate crisis, 
you know, you can really see the impact of this when you look at the mental health statistics. Even just in 2018, there were over 6,500 deaths by suicide in the UK. And if we don't achieve that system change you were talking about, it's just all downhill from here because with the climate crisis, that's just going to get even worse. There is actually a 2018 study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States. They said just one degree Celsius increase in U.S. temperature over a five-year period was associated with a two percentage point increase in self-reported mental health issues. And there is even now a term for this. Um, the American Psychological Association calls this the climate-related despair. And they see this as a distinct mental health condition. And this is this is the thing we need to talk about. What can the Green New Deal do to invest in people, their well-being, and people's overall growth, quality of life, and happiness? For too long, mental health has not had parity with physical health. We've, we've brushed mental health issues under the carpet, and I think that we can live in a stronger, more liberated society where we have more rights and more opportunities to do what we want to do that will help bring in how our own well-being and mental health operates. And um, it's incredible when you look at other countries in the world about how they work to support people with different mental health issues. And, and there are many ways that you can use that you, you don't just need to to prescribe things to people although whatever people's um, easiest ways to overcome mental health issues is obviously is was what we should support but I mean I've heard of people in Germany who had postnatal natal depress, depression and they were subscribed uh, some time away effectively where they were able to take their children and people would do their laundry and support them with all of the additional things that they might have cooking and all the additional pressures in life so that they were able to just overcome what they were feeling at the time with a little bit of additional support. And we can think so differently about how our mental health works. And well, when I think about my own experiences of being on a, a zero hour contract and working so many hours in unpredictable ways that ate into my social life that meant that I didn't know what money I'd have on a month by month basis to know that if I was going to be able to pay my rent that month. These are the way that exactly. Um, I think there are so many issues that we're experiencing, whether that's um, from stress about the, what the future could look like with climate change, whether that's stress because of uh, our workers' rights effectively being undermined. And I think that there's a way that we can be looking differently at this through green policy, through a green new deal, through thinking about well-being mm -hmm. rather than simply GDP. We can look at well-being and happiness and it will be a far better measure about how people in this country actually live their lives than if we're just looking at the amount of money that we get because of a, a growth that isn't making people happy. Mm -hmm. There is so many different aspects about how we do think about people because you know that that some of these deaths have been preventable because of what people could have done for themselves rather than what society could have done and I think that there's been far much language that's been talking about individuals than who we are as a society and I think that that comes through in I'm that conservative person just this week in a hustings who apparently said that um, disabled people people with disabilities should earn less because they aren't able, I can't remember her exact words, but you can see where her her mind, her thought, her mindset was. And I think that there's, especially under um, under conservative governments, we put that pressure onto the individual rather than onto the collective. And um, I think that, you know, what what is causing these problems here in the UK at the moment? I mean, the housing crisis that is forcing people into homelessness or or forcing people who might have preventable mental health issues because they're concerned about keeping a roof over their heads. And all of these things where precarious work, precarious housing, precarious opportunities is incredibly stressful and, of course, will impact people's lives. And I think that's why, you know, we talk about the universal basic income as one aspect of, what, of our Green New Deal. This isn't just about, I think some people talk about it as a 
just a replacement for job seekers. And it's beyond that. It's not just about people supporting people to find work, although one aspect of that is important because at the moment we have an entire system through our benefits uh, system where it becomes a box checking exercise to sit, find out if people should be allowed to to get support from our government or not. This is about trying to eliminate poverty across the board. And I mean, we've seen the, the statistics of, of child poverty in the UK, and, and that's been growing under both Labour governments and Conservative governments, um, which is, a I find, a really shocking statistic. But something like a universal basic income completely addresses lots of these aspects of how we work well, addressing poverty in our society, having things like rent caps and freezes, um, as well as making sure that we are building more homes so that we're attacking some of these problems that we have in our housing sector. It's a basic part of how we tackle some of these issues without necessarily realising that we're supporting, we're doing better things for people with mental health problems or who are at risk of homelessness. It's just about talking about what kind of society we want to be and how we make sure that everybody has the best opportunity that they can to live a fulfilling life without these fears um, that are often shadowing so many people. Mm -hmm. Your manifesto is about doing things in an entirely different way. It's about not patting ourselves on the back when the GDP is slightly higher than last year and when there's supposedly more money per person, which for some reason never trickles down to regular people anyway. But I feel like this week you also showed us that, one, we do need to go above and beyond and change the way we live. Two, that is possible. Doing things differently is possible. And three, that you have a plan and concrete programs to build an economy functioning within environmental limits. For example, you you mentioned the right to repair campaign and, you know, that's how we reduce the extraction of new materials. But, you know, using what we have is not only wearing an old t-shirt or using an old phone after repairing it, right? Um, Sean Barry in our first episode said, even when it comes to housing, the same logic can be applied, like making the most of empty homes, for example. There is another aspect of your manifesto, which I think kind of completes the picture. And that is to protect what we already have, the environment, the nature. Caroline Lucas just launched another bill called the New Deal for Nature. So how do we recraft our relationship to nature and reassociate with it and get closer to it? I think it was David Attenborough who was asked the question, when did you reconnect to nature? And he said, when did everybody disconnect from nature? And I think that that's uh, really important. When growing up, we talk about our connection to nature. We learn through a connection to nature uh, in books, lots of schools are now adopting stronger connections through using forest schools and different opportunities for young people to feel that connection to nature. We we play in parks, we've played with ladybirds and done all of those kind of different things. And then over time, what has disconnected us, I think, is really interesting in itself. I think that there's been a shift in mindset to for some people, of nature being something that can be exploited mm-hmm. and um, that nature can be something that uh, we can just destroy in the name of profit, again, whether that's green belts or parklands. And I think um, we need to really work to celebrate what we have. And I think one of the, lots of the things that we've talked about is not just uh, protecting nature itself, but that celebrating what we have through launching additional areas of outstanding natural beauty in national parks to work on that protection and and give space for people to reconnect again. And I even think that thinking quite differently, one of our policies is to introduce a law of ecocide, which would mean that we weren't allowed to, as well as a future generations bill, which would stop us destroying nature because of nature's own rights to exist we wouldn't be able to have fracking or HS2 or things like the vast use of pesticides that create, that are connected to bee colony collapse. We wouldn't be able to, with the Future Generations Act, which we currently have in Wales, 
it stopped the M4, I always call it the Newport bypass rather than the M4 relief road, because I think yet again, that's a, a point where people are trying to rebrand something to make it sound nicer than it is. And uh, the Newport bypass sounds more like the Newbury bypass, which shows just uh, how, how new roads don't solve issues of traffic on our roads. As we've seen with the Newbury bypass, it's still, they still have congestion. It's because more people use more cars because it's deemed to be the easiest form of transport. But the Newport bypass didn't happen as a result of a Future Generations Act because it was stated that we should make sure we protect the Gwent levels, an area of incredible diversity should be protected for future generations. And I think there are many ways that we can start thinking about nature yet again as something to be enjoyed and protected rather than what uh, something that is it can be exploited for, for money. And I think um, there are many ways that we can make that shift to make sure that we are talking about our environment in a very different way. So the ecocide law you mentioned, is, is that the accountability aspect that comes into play? Like, what would be the reinforcement mechanism that will intervene if all these ideas we're talking about are not complied with? So with ecocide, it would more be that you weren't able to get permission to do it in the first place. So, you know, it's, if you imagine, uh, first of all, it really does need to be an international law. So we would need to work at the UN level to create it. In fact, the law of ecocide is law during times of war, but not during times of peace. It's against international law to destroy vast areas of the environment, but you can it's not considered to be a problem during peacetime. On a, a UK level, if effectively, you wouldn't get permission for things like fracking or for things like HS2 that cuts through ancient woodlands. You just simply wouldn't get the, the permission to do that because it would be deemed ecocide. But for those people who do create mass environmental um, impact, then it would be an extension of um, the destruction of, of property, essentially, and, and follow very similar laws to that. I just think there are so many issues that we experience at the moment that are as a result of decisions about the world that we live in that are taken out of the, our hands. Things like finance, for example. I often think about the um, research and development that went into Deepwater Horizon yeah. uh, so that we could dig deeper and further for oil that caused one of the biggest environmental disasters of our generation and huge social problems in the surrounding communities who were living on beaches and, and lands that were coated from the oil spill. And I think, you know, what would have happened if that research and development had gone into renewables, if, if there'd been a policy, an international policy that said simply that we weren't able to, to do that, to operate in that kind of way, because of this law of ecocide, where would that money have gone? We, we could have had stronger battery storage. We could have had better renewables. We could have had something that could mean that we were closer on track towards meeting our climate targets, but instead we just pursued oil. And I think there are many frameworks that we can put policy. We can put policy in place in many frameworks, like a, a law of ecocide that means that we just change and maneuver our operations to a more a way that works better for the environment and better for people. Amelia, we're way over our time, but this is like my cheeky personal curiosity that I can't control. We've been talking about awakening and the green wave, you know, reconnecting to nature. How did it happen for you? What was your green awakening? So growing up, I um, lived in a house where my family did that thing that was very popular in the 80s and early 90s of um, supporting children in in Africa to have access to water and education. As well as where we lived, there was going to be a new road and um, housing estate that was going to go through a section of the Greenbelt. And um, it meant that lots of the community were frustrated by this and talked about lots of the environmental issues of the decisions that were going to affect things that I, I could really connect to as a child, like the impact on the badgers that lived in some woods that were near our house in Wales. And I think as I got older, and especially on that social justice side, it really occurred to me when you talk about problems on an international basis that my parents were giving money to, when we're talking about the an environment being destroyed, that this isn't 
about charity and supporting people and campaigning in our communities. This has been a political decision and it's politics that have created these problems. Yeah. And um, the more that I became aware about that, the more I wanted to make that change. And I think, especially with people like David Attenborough talking about wildlife and nature, I always wanted to, I always had a deep fascination. In fact, I studied environmental biology at for my undergraduate and environmental technology for my uh, master's quite a long time afterwards. And um, I've always wanted to tackle these environmental issues but I think also the aspects of social justice really make me feel the power of what we say as Greens because it is about talking about political decisions that have worked to oppress and undermine people um, around here in the UK and around the world and I think that it's the Greens that have done the best um, had the clearest message on challenging that and I think that one of the incredible things that I feel about the Green Party is we can have all of these big policies but what delivers change is activists in communities that stand for elections and deliver leaflets and um put that money behind behind our vision Mm -hmm. now i first voted in my first election which was a by-election when i was 18 and um a green candidate stood my mum gave me the leaflets for every candidate and said to vote for what i believe in and i i read all of the leaflets and i chose the green party And I think that there are many people like me that feel like they're frustrated by the effects of the what decisions are doing to people, what decisions are doing to the environment, the way that big business can undermine people's workers' rights, how human rights are being violated and environmental protection not being strong enough. And um, the people, the best way of communicating that is people, our grassroots activists, people on the ground. That are delivering leaflets and are standing as candidates and I feel like you know what would have happened if there hadn't been that green candidate standing that time I hope that I'd still have found the green party but I feel that it makes a real difference to um, feeling that immediate connection about how you can make change when there are people there who are saying the same things as you you just haven't necessarily had the chance to hear them yet until that leaflet comes through your door. Wow. Yeah, that, that's that's so true. What those grassroots activists are doing on the ground is so, so important. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, the way that we win elections is through genuine conversations on doorsteps that show that we've worked hard in communities and we've got the ideas that can make change happen. And we can say that on the, the leadership can talk about that on different debates and television programs. But what people will react to is honest and genuine people on their doorstep who are part of their community and uh, are sharing that big vision with them on a one-to-one basis. And I think that, you know, the more people who go out and do that, the more opportunities that we have to find like-minded people on the other side of those doors and the more likely we are to be able to win those seats. Absolutely. Actually, you're going to go canvassing now as well in a bit, I think. So I don't (laughs) want to stop you from doing that. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Amelia, thank you so much for coming out to the podcast. Oh, thank you for all the work you do on it. It's a, a really it's a fantastic podcast. Congratulations. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening to Green Space. And watch out for more episodes coming your way. But in the meantime, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or review. Tell your friends and family to subscribe to. Tweet about it. Post it on Facebook for that uncle and auntie. Basically, get the word out.